Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I'm sure we've all at one time or another have worn the wrong clothes, right? You've either dressed too highly for something too simple, for something you're going to get dirty in, or you dress too sloppily, too plainly for something that's very formal. Maybe for some of us, the problem isn't one of a mistake, like you didn't know what the attire would be for this event, but it's just a matter of bad taste. That's possible. So you've seen this, I'm sure, on TV, the different shows that, I think one of them's called What Not to Wear, where they do some kind of wardrobe makeover. I've seen some of these, reluctantly, slightly painfully. I don't prefer those kind of shows, but I have seen them with my wife. She enjoys them a little more than I do, and we can't watch Spies Like Us anymore, so uh, we, we do something like this every now and then. And uh, So if you've seen even as much as I have, just as little as I have, then you know that when you watch one of these shows, one thing that you always hear is this concept that that shape doesn't fit your body, right? Or that color doesn't match your complexion. This doesn't go with your hair. That kind of thing. And then you eventually see someone try on this new amazing outfit they picked out for them. And, and then the host or fashion critic says something like, that is so you, right? That is so you. Well, Paul talks in similar terms in Colossians 3. Believe it or not. He says the Christian life is like a change of clothes. The Christian life is like a, a new wardrobe. There are certain things, he says, that aren't you. And there are certain things that you shouldn't wear because they're not you. And there are some new things that we can point you to that are so you, that are beautiful, and you should put them on and not go back to your, your old college sweats. He's picturing life. He's picturing the feelings of life, the decisions of life, actions and habits that make up our lives as like garments, clothes that we put on. And they come from one of two different wardrobes, in a sense. One is the old you, and the other is the new you. Let's start reading. Colossians 3, verse 8 is where we'll begin, backing up over some verses that we looked at last week. He says, but now you must put them all away, put them in the basement, burn them, give them to goodwill, put these things away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. For there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. To God. Now, last week we saw two sin lists, verses 5 through 9. In there, Paul tucks away two different sin lists, things that Christians must put away, take off, leave behind, or even put to death. So, in verse 5 is one of these sin lists, and it's a, a list of sins of lust, primarily sexual lusts. And then verse 8 begins another such list, but this is a list of sins of relationships, feelings toward others, and then communication toward others that spring from 
those feelings. Now, isn't it interesting that most of us tend to focus on one of those kinds of lists more than the other? One list is sexual. Another list is relational. So some church traditions are horrified at the slightest bit of sexual failure, but quite content with gossip and backbiting and harboring bitterness and hot tempers. And then other church traditions and other Christians in those church traditions perhaps are so passionate about living in peace, living in love and acceptance, that there would never be any discussion of flagrant immorality, never confrontation for sin. Well, Paul is neither a fundamentalist nor a mainliner. You might not be familiar with that word mainliner if you've been in evangelical circles your whole life, but some of you came from liberal Protestantism, and you know that word mainliner. You know which side of the equation your church tradition would fall upon, which list is more bad in your history, and hence, hence what you probably need to, to watch and, and guard from an imbalance even today. Well, Paul won't let us get away with that kind of selective holiness. Sexual sins are wrong. It's the old self. Relational sins are wrong. It's the old self. Isn't it interesting that Paul addresses issues that are both internal and external in these lists? We saw that last week. Verse 5 talks about lustful feelings and lustful actions. And then verse 8 talks about angry feelings and angry speech. And Paul says there are things that Christians aren't to do, and there are things Christians are to do. He doesn't have just one kind of the list. It's not just negative or only positive. It's both. He's both restrictive. There are certain things we stay away from. And yet he's proactive. There are certain things we do. Again, Paul won't let us adopt any kind of selective holiness. So last week we saw what to take off, what to put away, what to put to death, what to burn of these old clothes. And now this week we look at Verses 12 and following, what to put on. There's a put-on, put-off principle that's often mentioned in the New Testament. Colossians 3 is one of those places, but Ephesians 4 is another. Let me read that for you. In verse 22 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, Put off your old self. Declothe your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness and holiness of Christ. In Romans 13, he says something similar. He says, let us cast off, throw behind us the works of darkness, and put on, clothe ourselves with the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Christians need to put off the old self, put on the new self. That's no small part of the Christian life, and it's not just one or the other, which means that Christianity is not a religion of mere avoidance. It's not simply avoiding those pitfalls, not going there, not hearing that, not seeing those. Instead, it's warm-blooded, heart rooted. It's not tied to ceremonialism. He doesn't let us have a kind of religion that would just be external. That's what he was talking about in Colossians chapter 2, remember? That's the false teaching that was swarming about the city and the cities around it. Don't eat, don't touch, don't look, don't go there, don't do this. New rules they'd made up, and some old rules that they revived. Treat this day in a special way. Use these feasts as a pathway to to more spiritual freedom. But Paul won't have it. No. Christianity is warm-blooded and heart-rooted, and it's inextricably tied to the gospel. 
and to all the new realities that come in that gospel. It is not self-improvement. Hence, just look back at chapter 1 in verse 21 to remind us of this. I mean, we were rescued. We have a substitute righteousness. He says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but he has now reconciled you, what? In his body, by his death. That's how you were reconciled. He's presented you holy and blameless, not based on your own holiness, but based on the holiness of Christ. You're blameless in him. You're above reproach in Christ, not of your own doing. If indeed, verse 23, you continue in the faith, press on, keep continuing. True Christians will press on, will continue. Be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. There's our hope, the gospel. Don't shift from that to another hope. Not self-improvement, but a lifestyle that's tied to gospel freedom. Remember we talked about that, we talked about that progression Last week, where you see in Colossians 1, Christ's person and his work and the gospel that comes through his person and work. You see gospel hope spelled out in Colossians 1, and then Paul moves to new identity and spiritual blessings and growing in those spiritual blessings and new realities. And then he gets to chapter 3, after taking a little parentheses on some bad teaching, what's wrong, what not to do, what not to think. In chapter 3, he says, have an upward-mindedness. Have an eternal perspective. The new creation has come. Set your mind on it. Set your affections on it. Set your priorities on it. And then he gets to new behavior. Again, Look how long it took for Paul to get to behavior. Chapter 3, verse 5 is really the first time he mentions anything about behavior. It has to first be Christ, his work, his person, the gospel, and the benefits of the gospel in him, which are ours, ours by his grace, ours by his doing. A new identity that we have in him, an upward-mindedness, seeking what's to come. Part of seeking what's to come, that mindset is living out a certain way. And that certain way is extremely relational. Do you notice that when we read this bit today, chapter 3? It's amazing how Paul emphasizes the relational aspect of Christianity. In fact, you can think of last week and this week both in those terms. Both what to put away and what to put on. Last week... Verse 5, he talked about sins, of feelings and thoughts, of lust, sexual actions even. What are these but broken relationship, twisted relationships? It's not just private and personal, that's relational as well. In verse 8, he says, put away sinful feelings of anger and then the, put away the verbal attacks that go along with them so often. Again, twisted relationships. And then he gets to verses 12 to 15. And almost everything he says here about what's to be put on is something about how we feel towards others, what we do with others. In other words, there's almost nothing he says here in this part of chapter 3 that isn't in some way relational. Now we think of the Christian life oftentimes in terms of me and my Bible me praying alone, me in my prayer closet, me in my car with my praise music. And it's all very individualistic. And the Bible talks about that. No doubt Jesus should be with you in your car and you should spend time alone praying and reading his word together. But it's amazing how much togetherness and corporate identity we find in the New Testament compared with our modern-day evangelicalism. A verse was up here on the screen while we were singing today. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. So we often think of that in very individualistic terms, that when Christ comes into my heart, he makes me new. And I'm, I'm like a, a snail that turned into a butterfly, right? I had a little cocoon experience, and I come out a different 
thing, a different person. And, and in a sense, that's true. But literally, what, it, what it's translated as is he is of a new creation. See how that sounds more corporate, more global? Hear how that sounds bigger? We are of a new creation. And yes, each of us as individuals have had changes in our own personal hearts. Yes, it's not just corporate. But we are of a new creation. Christ's coming means something very relational about God's plan and his plan to restore what has been broken. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, there was separation with God, but there was already immediately problems with each other. Adam blamed his wife. Just about the second sin that's ever happened. And then they cover themselves up. Why? Well, now they have things to hide. Sort of a symbol for shame. They have shame with each other. And then you go to the next family, right? Adam and Eve have two sons. One kills the other. You see, the Old Testament is in sort of a roller coaster of ups and downs of relating to God and relating to each other. So when Jesus comes, he comes to restore not only our relationship to God, but our relationship with others. There are certain virtues we have to put on. Put on what? Well, verses 12 to 15 give us about 10 different virtues. I think we can treat them as five couplets. So you notice in your notes, five different couplets that we should put on that Paul lists here in Philippians 3. He says, put on compassion and kindness first. Compassion. Sensitivity toward others. Sensitivity to their needs and even their wants. Sympathy for them and their needs, their wants and their hurts. Show kindness to them. Not just have compassion. Compassion can be inward and never outward. Theoretically. But Paul puts compassion next to kindness. What we would show to others with our compassion. We would show them acts of kindness. Secondly, he says, put on humility and meekness. Put on the kind of humility that Christ had. Where he put our needs before his own, our wants before his own. Philippians 2 said, this is the cross. He came and humbled himself, became a servant, and served us even unto death and death upon a cross. And we should have that mindset in ourselves. We should have that that mindset as we relate to each other. We should put others' needs before our own. Or the way he puts it in verse 3 of Philippians 2 is, We should treat them as more important than ourselves. This will lead to meekness. We'll defer to others. If we think that they're more important than us, then we'll seek to meet those needs more frequently than we do. Third, he says, put on patience and tolerance. The end of verse 12, he says, be patient. Be patient with others. Have tolerance toward them. Look at verse 13. The first phrase there is bearing with one another. It could be translated tolerance. Now, there's a wrong way and a right way to think about tolerance. Tolerance is a word we use a lot today, at least our our world does, our culture does. And for much of the, the world today, tolerance usually means a total lack of judgment. Full and complete unqualified acceptance. Now, the Bible does not speak of tolerance or bearing with one another like that. It's not a blind bearing with one another. In fact, Jesus confronted one church in Revelation 2 by saying, you tolerate that false teacher Jezebel. She's causing trouble in your church. To tolerate her means you don't love them because she's hurting them. If you love them, get her out. Matthew 18 is part of not tolerating sin, right? In love, you keep confronting and let it get more public and more serious. 
The world thinks that's not tolerant. The Bible says that that is loving, but it also has a category for patiently bearing with one another, of putting up with, tolerating each other in this way. We lived in England for a while, some years back, and you know, the Americans uh, at our university would get together and talk about the difference between America and England. You know, we would kind of, we'd complain together is what we would do. We'd gripe, you know. So hard to get fast food here. You know, you, the grocery carts have all four wheels that turn. So you, you do this. <laughs> really weird. Hot and cold spigots separate? I mean, how do you wash your face? You go, you just try to splash it on. It never works. It's not good. Most homes don't have showers. They have just baths, which I hadn't taken a bath in about 15 years before that. But you move to England, you, you better take baths. A friend of ours said, as we were complaining together one night, probably sinfully so, but he said, the Brits have a high tolerance for pain. Well, that was a good way of putting it. They do. They're content to keep their homes at a balmy 62 for energy efficiency's sake and wear scarves all the way to bedtime. We are a pampered people here in the States. And so, you know, that's, that's a cultural difference. Take it or leave it. There are some ways in which we're wrong for uh, liking what we like and being picky about what we're picky about. But, but just that phrase, the Brits have a high tolerance for pain, makes me think of what Paul's getting at here. We could rework it and say Christians should have a high tolerance for each other. At the very least, Christians should tolerate each other. Right? We should do more than that. But at the very least, we should put up with one another. At the very least, we should have thick skin. Proverbs 19.11 says, it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. Boy, you know, in Bible times, whether that's Old Testament Bible times or New Testament Bible times, that was an ethic that wasn't held widely in the secular culture. Do you know what I mean? To overlook an offense, that would have been wrong for all of the Jewish neighbors in the Old Testament, and it would have been weird for all the Roman world to overlook an offense. The Bible says it's a man's glory to do that. Or Micah 6.8 tells us, this is what's right, here's what God expects of you, do justice and love mercy. Love it, not just do it. Love mercy. Not just show mercy, but to love it and to walk humbly with your God. Fourth, Paul says we should put on forgiveness and love. Forgiveness, he says in verse 13, and he gives a reason for why we should forgive. You've been forgiven. The Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You see this so often in the New Testament, from Jesus, from Paul's epistles, all over. We've been forgiven much, therefore we should forgive much. We forgive because God has forgiven them, especially when we're talking about fellow Christians. There's a horrible irony about being more picky than God is about your sin, of me being more stringent, me being more demanding, more rigid than he is. He's holy, I'm not. Forgiveness and love. Look at verse 14. What does he say about love? Above all these put on love. It binds everything together. Love is above them all. It's the umbrella of all these things Paul's listing here. And it's it's the glue. It's what holds them together. To, To put it in clothing terms, this is the top coat. And it's the belt, right? It's the middle that holds it all together, and it's, it's the thing that covers them all. Love has a special place here, like holiness has a special place among God's attributes. He's holy, 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 and no other attributes ever repeated three times. I think it's fair to say that there's a way in which love functions as a unique attribute for God and 
and for Christians, for the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what love is. Love is not easily offended. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love gives the benefit of the doubt instead of assuming the worst. 1 Peter 4.8 tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. Not a few, but a multitude. And not a multitude of aggravations or annoyances or differences of opinion. A multitude of sins. So when the disciples wanted to go, go further than most of their day would have gone in saying what they think forgiveness should look like, they said to Jesus, should it be seven times? It was double plus one, what the rabbi said. Jesus said, oh, seven. Like, that's enough. Seventy times seven. Which he might as well have said 700 or 7,000 or 7 million times seven. His point is not that it's only 490. His point is that it's, you're not close to, to being right with just seven We forgive much because we've been forgiven much and we love much because we have been loved much and we love much even when it's undeserved because we have been loved as undeserved people. He says, fifth, put on peace and thankfulness. In verse 15, look at that. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, Notice that this verse is not about practical decision-making. Some people have this view of decision-making, spiritualized approach to practical decision-making. Maybe you have it yourself. I'm going to suggest that you rethink it. But maybe you think in terms of which car to buy, which house to buy, which girl to marry, which college to go to, where to live, what city... What to do today, whether to use that grocery store or that one, this bank or that bank, this church or that church. You feel as though God puts a peace in your heart when it's good and right, and then there's a lack of peace there when it's not. So an easy cop-out is just to say, well, I don't have a peace about it, right? Maybe you don't think of it as a cop-out. Maybe sometimes it is, though. Regardless, though, Notice, this verse is not saying that. This is the verse that most people who teach that concept of decision-making would use to say, I've heard this before, preachers like to preach from this verse, the Holy Spirit is like an umpire calling balls and strikes on your decisions. Green light, red light. The green light is peace, the red light is, I don't have peace. Now, you can go to other places in the Bible and talk about the Holy Spirit giving us peace. You can't really find that kind of language tied to practical decision-making. Instead, what you find Paul doing when he's trying to think about whether to go to that city or that city, he says things like, it seemed right for us to do that. It's probably just practical, right? He's praying for open doors. He's praying for God to bless, but it's very practical decision-making. This verse, as you can see from the context, isn't about decision-making. The peace in this passage is about us. It's relational peace. There is nothing in this passage about the Holy Spirit telling us which house to buy or which job to take. No, instead, he says, you've been called in one body. You see that? Let peace rule in your hearts. Let it rule in your relationships. Let it rule this church. You've been called to do this. You've been called in one body. The whole section here, obviously, is relational. So, again, I won't belabor the point that this is not a verse about practical decision-making. And he says, verse 15, right at the end, and be thankful. Thankful when you sense peace with a brother or sister in Christ. Thankful when things are smooth. I love to say to our elders, God has given us a season of peace and love and affection for each other that's unusual. And let's enjoy it. Let's embrace it. Let's protect it. Let's pray for it. But it's unusual. Let's let's enjoy it. 
Be thankful for it. Talk about it. And be thankful when those relationships aren't evidencing peace like you'd hoped. You see, in Christ, peace has come. That's what the angels announced when they were announcing Jesus' birth, right? Peace on earth among men with whom he's pleased. Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 both talked about a day coming, a new creation, an age of peace. It's already started to come with Christ's first coming. It'll come to its fullness at his second coming. But the word picture in Isaiah 11 and 65 is, in this day, a a child will play in the den of a cobra. They'll be buddies. How weird is that? Babies and cobras will play together. That doesn't go together. That's unthinkable, unreasonable peace. It's like an ox and a lion cuddling. Now, I don't know if that's really going to happen in the new heaven or the new earth. I don't know if we'll walk around and go, oh, look, baby and cobra, ox and lion. Maybe, but but it's also possible that it's just a symbol for unthinkable, blow-your-mind peace. St. Bernard's and mailmen will hug. (laughs) That kind of thing. Be thankful. Be thankful that it has come in principle. And it will come someday. In its fullness. So even where peace doesn't permeate this relationship, where this one is tough, and her, she's hard, and he's difficult, and, and this group seems a little cantankerous, be thankful. Peace has already come, and it will come someday in the future in a glorious and full way. These are the new clothes, though, that we're daily putting on and trying to consciously live in. And look like. I know that the old clothes keep reappearing. Right? We have to cast them off. Paul says, strip it off when you see it. These old clothes feel good at times. They, They feel comfortable. They're roomy. They're worn in. There's nothing picky at least at first. But they stink. These old clothes are tattered. These old clothes carry disease. And these clothes are not fitting for princess, princesses and princes. Our old clothes are like a, an orange prison suit. And that has no place outside of prison. You wouldn't wear a prison suit outside of prison, to a funeral, or to a wedding. It just doesn't fit. And even more so, if you had been released from prison, wandered about, and then, and then somehow were made royalty. Made to be a prince, to wear the princely ring and the princely robe. To throw it off and to say, I like my orange prison suit. is just weird. Now, maybe in our American culture, we're a little, actually a little more open to that. You know, you might think that a, a farmer, wranglers, and construction, bu- construction boots kind of guy who's made king and says, I'm just going to stick with my wranglers and my boots. We, in America, we think that's cool. We're like, oh yeah, you be you. Right? But we're the only culture who thinks that, by the way. Right? We've got this thing with kings ever since you know, the 1700s. We don't like kings. But if you can just kind of suspend your American anti-monarchialism for just a little bit and, and think in terms of kingliness in the Bible being a good word picture, not a bad one, and kings supposing to look like kings, then remember that we weren't born this way. We were content in our dirty prison garb. But we've been made princes and princesses of the king through Christ. And now we wear a a new 
We wear new clothes. And yes, we keep finding old, dirty socks underneath our shiny new shoes. We keep throwing them off and putting clean ones on. And I know, mysteriously, it doesn't work, right, in real life for us to think that, you know, you thought you got it all off and then, whoa, lo and behold, a dirty t-shirt is underneath. But that's kind of what's going on as Paul's picturing the Christian life. Christians are new. They're to put on the new self. And when they find the old, they're to throw it off. We have to keep reminding ourselves who we are. And in Christ, we wear white. Revelation 3 says, God's people are now wearing gowns of perfect white, a symbol of righteousness covering our whole bodies, our whole beings, our souls. Many of the the families that have adopted have adopted from foreign countries. So I love hearing the stories. I think the Mancini's told uh, a similar story to this last year at our adoption emphasis weekend about the adjustment of bringing a baby, especially when it's not a newborn baby, from a foreign country. That baby already has tastes, smells that they're used to, right? They already are used to certain flavors and not used to yours. But there is a wonderful, glorious, inevitable, and purposeful adjustment process and assimilation process. I know some of you Trekkies think that the word assimilation is bad, but, but in the adoption context, assimilating a new baby into your home, into a new culture, in, into new parents, new food, new nation, new likes, new wants. I think Jason Mancini said last year, they, they're not cowboy fans, which you might not think that's a good thing, but you know, it, it shows you that our wants become their wants and And it takes time, doesn't it? But it is happening. Do you notice that Jesus often portrayed Christian growth in terms of plants, branches, trees, fruit? Paul seems to emphasize new clothing. It's like that. Put it on. Take off the old. Jesus seems to talk about the Christian life in botanical terms. Can I give you four quick S's that came to mind this week as I was thinking about Jesus portraying the Christian life in terms of plants and trees and branches and roots? Doesn't it tell us that growth is first slow? If you go out and stare at your tree in the backyard and say, I'm going to watch it grow today, you won't see anything but the wind moving it. It's slow. It's imperceptible. But secondly, growth is also seasonal. So there are some spurts of growth, even with our vines in the backyard and our trees in the front yard. Right? There are some days where you walk out and you go, oh, it's spring. Right? There are buds. Something changed, and it changed overnight. But third, growth is a struggle. It's a struggle. Roots grow through thick hard dirt to try to grasp moisture for their salvation. A bud that will one day bloom has to first break through bark. Struggle. And fourth, growth is sure. If we're in Christ, we're connected to him, he's the trunk and he has deep roots, then we're rooted in him and he will nourish us and he will produce fruit in us. Now let's talk about why. We'll more quickly move through the rest of your outline. Why? Why put these things on? What what are the bases for these things that Paul said to put on? Remember those five couplets? He's already mingled in a few whys through the process. Verse 13, he gives us a why about forgiveness. Forgive because the Lord has forgiven you. Verse 14, he gives a why. Put on love because it binds everything together. Verse 15, let peace rule in your hearts because you're called to be one body. He's already given us some reasons, some whys. And I think we can also back up to verses 10, 11, and 12 to see more explanation about why we put these things on. Five things. First, these are you. 
He's already are you. There's a new self. Whatever the TV show, What Not to Wear, can do to the outside to make you a different person, they can't get inside. In the Christian life, we're made to look like, dress like, act like what we already are. We're not all of that yet completely, but in principle and in truth, we are new. There's a new self, verse 10 says. We have put it on past tense, it says. Secondly, you're being renewed. That's why verse 10 tells us you're being renewed in the image of your maker, It's literal in the Greek like this. Literally, the new is being renewed. The new is already there, and yet it's being renewed. It is new, and it's being renewed. It's now and what? Not yet. It pops up again. Both are true. So the renewal is ongoing. The renewal is something that ultimately happens by God's doing, not our own. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2 says. We have to do that. Work it out. Yes, it'll be work. But next verse, it's God who's at work to will and do in you of his good pleasure. Here, he says, we're being renewed, done to us. And it happens in large part through knowledge of him. Know him. See him. 2 Corinthians 3 says... We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory, slowly, inch by inch, surely we're changing to look more like Christ by beholding him. We behold him and we're changed from one degree of glory to another. We're being renewed and we're already new. Third, you're of a new humanity. Verse 11 is talking about that, where he says, here, now in Christ, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Not only different groups, but groups opposed to each other. And it was was mutual. The feelings were mutual. For first century Jews living there in a Roman world, it was animosity and pride condescension towards those who weren't circumcised. And you better believe it went the other way too. Romans were king of the world. They had special citizenship and special privileges. And, and these Jews were, they were occupying their land. They were the ones who had weird rituals to them like circumcision or you know, temple worship and these kinds of things. Animosity, pride, condescension. There's no longer barbarian, he says. These are people who didn't speak Greek. No longer Scythian. These are literal barbarians, people who were close to being savages. There's no longer slave or free. And what thicker line was there in the Roman world than slave or free, maybe other than Jew or Gentile? But Paul puts them there together and says, no longer is someone slave or, or free, even if they remain a slave even though they've never been enslaved. You see, all cultural, racial, economic, and class distinctions wash away in Christ. Not totally, right? Slaves can still be slaves and be in Christ, and free can still be free in Christ, and Jews can still be Jews in Christ, and Greeks can still be Greeks in Christ. But there's no rivalry. There's no hierarchy. And there's not to be any any condescension, opposition, This in Christ is to be your primary identity. So for us, it would look like something like this. There is no longer boomer or buster or Gen X or Gen Y. There is no longer born here in Albuquerque or transplanted later on. There is no longer black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Mexican or Spanish. There is no longer rich or poor or sophisticated or sloppy No longer educated or non-educated, smart or simple, Democrat or Republican, hip or geek. No, Christ is all. 
Fourthly, Christ is all. He's the head of this new humanity. He is all and in all. He's everything and he's in everything, which kind of sounds like pantheism, that God is everywhere, he's in everything. That's not what Paul means. He means everything's done to Christ, everything's a reality that's in Christ. There's nothing that can be real and true for the Christian that doesn't have Christ in it. Christ is all. Christ is our primary identity. Because the fifth, you're chosen, holy, and beloved. Three words he uses at the beginning of verse 12. It means we're now his. We now do what he does. We now love what he loves. You're called to imitate what he's shown to you. You're called to replicate what he's done for you. Not savingly so. You can't save anyone. You can't die in the place of anyone and free them from eternal torment. But, but you can love them and sacrifice for them. You can put your, their needs above your own. How? One last thing here in your notes. How? Well, go to the end of the passage we've read this morning. Verse a verse we read but didn't talk about yet and we'll only mention it and then talk more about it in the weeks to come. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You have to notice that verse 16 is part of the flow of Paul's thought here in Colossians 3. So, Verse 16 about singing and encouraging each other is part of how we forgive each other. It's part of how we love each other. Paul, in fact, has been building from theoretical feelings like compassion to getting more specific and getting more difficult to things like forgiveness. And he puts here toward the end of the list, get together often and sing loudly, sing for others. Let the word dwell richly in you, in them, in your meetings, with the word. And in worship, we're pursuing peace and fighting for love. Would you bow with me and let me walk you through some questions for introspection before we sing one more time and then are dismissed. Do you see these traits in your life? Are you building on the right foundation of Christ and the gospel? Are you trying to play dress up? Anyone can act like a king. Anyone can pretend they live in a palace. I wonder if these things are external in hopes that in hopes that they might become real? Or are these things real and internal and hence are working themselves out even if slowly? You see, you can't change from the outside in. If you see these things in your life, I wonder, how's the fruit inspection going? Are, Are these things increasing in your heart and in your actions, even if in small, botanical-like increments? I'm not asking you to see the change of last week, but has there been change or growth in a year or two or three? Are you working these things into your life and into your practice with determination and discipline and blood earnestness like putting to death? That kind of language would signify. I wonder, are you close enough to anyone, any Christian, to have to work at these things, to occasionally ask for forgiveness, to be forgiven, to seek reconciliation, to confront, or to cover? Are you getting along just fine as you live on a social island and put up your walls. Or maybe you're compartmentalizing parts of your life 
And maybe there's some areas of your life where you're content for there to be inconsistency. Maybe you seek these things in your home, but not at work. Or maybe you seek them in your work because a job's on the line, but not at home. Or maybe your guard is down with your kids because they can't fire you. You can't be in trouble with them. How about Facebook? Is there a graciousness about your Facebook wall? In this new age of e-communication, have you found a newfound ability to let things off your chest as you let them loose over an email? How about theological debate? Are these garments evidenced there? Or when you talk about the most holy things, are you the most riled up? What about politics? Maybe you'd say, I confess, I, I can talk to people about Jesus, but as soon as I found out, find out that they voted for him, I, it's war. The Bible tells us that conflict is inevitable in this fallen world and until Jesus returns, it's inevitable in the church. But God is intent with the death and resurrection of his son to restore and to bring peace, to unite vertically with him and horizontally with others. One day conflict will be no more. There will be Restoration and reconciliation, either in heaven or in hell. Until then, individualism, commitment phobia, are escapist cop-outs. Do you see that? Conflict is opportunity. Opportunity to be helped with our sin opportunity to do what God has done in Jesus for us, opportunity to be about his work, opportunity to see the kingdom slightly more visibly than we did the day before. Don't run from it. Just pray for wisdom and do what's right and cling to the cross. The gospel is the only constant basis for pursuing peace with others in the church, and what a powerful motivation it is for being at peace with others and being at peace in our own hearts. 